if you have your Bible open to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. Today we're finally get, getting back into our study through Romans. We've been away from it since before spring break, but I'm, I'm really glad to be back, back in it. And we're at the tail end in Romans 11. We're at the tail end of this most challenging section of the letter that began all the way back in chapter 9. We're going to consider the whole chapter of chapter 11 today. Uh, not because you couldn't break it down anymore. I, I just think the argument that Paul makes in Romans 11 is, is just is so unified that it just makes a lot of sense to look at it all at once. So I hope you've had a chance to read it already to, before you came today. Um, we'll read it in just a second. This is What we're going to read is Paul's conclusion to uh, the question that he began anticipating back in chapter 9. The question which was, reading between the lines, uh, what about Israel? Um, Paul spent eight chapters laying out the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ to everyone who believes, and he showed that that gospel that he was laying out so clearly, that salvation in Christ by grace through faith, uh, is just rooted deeply in the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of, of all the promises of the Old Testament, even apprehending that salvation by faith alone is, is following in the footsteps of Abraham. Uh, but it, this gospel that he's been preaching is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. But it's, it's precisely at that point that Jews, Paul knew, could raise the objection, though, what about Israel, though? Because weren't many of those promises in the Old Testament, weren't they made to Israel? Weren't, 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 wasn't Israel the chosen covenant people of God in the Old Covenant? And if these promises have now, as we're finding out, if these same promises have now been fulfilled in Christ and, and then in the church that is made up of anyone and everyone who believes... Jew or Gentile alike, um, why, why do we see so few Jews? Where are all the Jews coming to Christ? Because if the promise was made to them, but they don't seem to be coming to Christ. So the, the way in which Paul anticipates the question in chapter 9, verse 6, is has the word of God failed? He made these promises to Israel, but they don't seem to be coming to faith in Christ like we would expect. So has the word of God failed? That's what he that's what he anticipated in chapter 9. And for the next two chapters, Paul defends the truth that God's word hasn't failed and he hasn't forgotten about the ethnic people of Israel. And he wraps that argument up here in chapter 11 very carefully. Now, this is an important chapter to think through, but not just because it gives you an amazing big-picture view of God's uh, saving his people, um, the, the whole purpose of God for the salvation of both Jew and Gentile, but because in doing so, it also teaches us a lot about not only who the people of God are, but what should characterize them, meaning us if we're in Christ. So that being said, we're covering a whole chapter. Let's go ahead and read it together, and then I'll lay out what I'd like us to see in it. So Romans 11, beginning in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God is not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the Scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, 
They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, Elijah says. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not become, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports, that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their, their unbelief. But you, stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the, the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also might now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. 
Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, I ask that as we come to this most important and most challenging chapter today, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the truth uh, that you would have us to see and minds to understand it clearly? Would you please give us hearts to embrace the truth that we find here, wills to uh, heed whatever admonishment you give us in these words? Lord, would you give me the help that I need to teach? Would you guard me from saying anything that's untrue or not clear? Help me to say, help me to rightly divide the word and help me say what is true and helpful. Give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the climactic verse in this chapter, um, as well as the most debated verse in this chapter, as, as to the meaning of it. Remember, I've told you back in chapter 9, there's a lot of debate about Romans 9 through 11. Some of, it, some, of it, some of it is not because it's unclear, but because it's very clear, and you understand exactly what Paul is saying. It's just a hard saying. There are other things, though, that Paul says in these chapters. It's just hard to figure out what he means, right? Um, and, and verse 26 is the climactic point of this chapter, and it's one of that kind. Verse 26 specifically where Paul says, and in this way... All Israel will be saved. And a multitude of questions surround that. What is Israel here? Is it talking about ethnic Jews? Is it figurative to talk about the church? Uh, it, what does all Israel mean? Does it mean all without exception? Does it mean all without distinction? What does in this way mean? In what way? I mean, this questions abound over that verse, but it seems to be a climactic point. So, you know, there's plenty to think about in this chapter. And sometimes I think um, we give so much thought to, to nitpicking verses like that and believe you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, before it's all said and done, I'm going to tell you how I understand that verse. But there's a lot more that there is in this chapter that we need to see that I think sometimes if we just focus all on those, those hard-to-understand verses, uh, we can miss so the message of the rest of the chapter. So here's how I want us to see and break down uh, this, this chapter. Um, Paul's going to recover some ground he, he covered in chapter 9 in verses 1 through 10. In, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, Paul emphasizes this bedrock truth. God's people are saved by grace. God's people are saved by grace. It's in these verses that he picks up back on some things he, st he said in chapter 9. He's showing that the objection that, that the Jews made was based on a misunderstanding of the evidence of the Old Testament itself. God's people are saved by grace. That's just basic, but it's good. It's, it's necessary. But then having established that, Paul proceeds through the rest of the chapter, not only to explain God's purpose of salvation for his people, but to explain some characteristics that should characterize them in the process. So the second thing we're going to see is verses 11 through 16. In this truth, God's people are evident. <laughs> God's people are evident. I describe the point this way 
based on the assumption behind Paul's argument in verses 11 through 16. And I'll explain more what I mean when, when we get there. God's people are evident, verses 11 through 16. Then Paul's going to make it clear in verses 17 to 24 that God's people are humble. He's going to say that by way of a pretty strong warning that we're going to need to think through carefully. And then finally, Paul's going to end the chapter, verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 36, showing that God's people are for God's glory. Certainly that most disputed verse is in that, in that section, but it ends with this great doxology. So that's, that's how we're going to think through this chapter. It's four points. The bookends of those four points uh, say that God's people are by His grace and for His glory. And the, the middle two verses, he shows that they are what should characterize them. They are, hum- they are evident and they are humble. It's a great chapter, certainly some hard words in it, but let's dive in and, and go to the beginning and think through it together First, thinking about the first point, God's people are saved by grace. So Paul begins this chapter in verse 1 again with a question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? I ask then. Okay, so he's, he's clearly building. He's not forgetting what he said before. So what is he saying? On the one hand, Paul is just picking up on what he has just said if you ignore the big 11 that's right there. Like in the, in the verse right before it, chapter 10, verse 21, he had just quoted Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 2, which, which talks about how Israel is a, a disobedient and contrary people that no matter how long God holds out his mercy toward them, they don't repent, they don't walk in faithfulness. And Isaiah was writing that 700 years before this. 700 years, and Paul's quoting it, still the case. Uh, and so he's asking on the basis of that, has God rejected his people? They, they seem to be rejecting Christ in mass. And on the other hand, Paul is also beginning to, in these verses to retrace some steps from chapter 9. There in chapter 9, he was saying that God's word to Israel had not failed, and he proved it by showing that salvation, even according to the Old Testament, was never due to ethnicity but was according to God's purpose of election. And he follows that same line of argument again in chapter 11. So try to follow what Paul is saying here. At the end of verse 1, the question is, has God rejected his people? Following that in verse 1, Paul, and this is important because it's going to come up again at the end of our time here, so remember this. Paul puts himself forward as an example. Uh, that God hasn't rejected ethnic Israelites. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So has God rejected the, the Israelites? Paul's like, evidently not, because I'm an ethnic Israelite. So he puts himself as an example of that. But notice how, uh, how quick he is to show that he's not an example simply because he was an ethnic Israelite. But look where he goes in verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. And you can see uh, where he is saying that even among those who were redeemed, like me, among the Jews, the reason is not because we're Jews, but because we were foreknown and chosen simply according to God's gracious election. That's ground that he covered in thir- very thoroughly in chapter 8, showing that God's election is unconditional. And Paul here, he goes uh, 
again to the Old Testament to show that this has always been the case. This is not a new thing. This has always been the case. So see how he says in the next phrase, um, after he says, uh, God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. He says in the middle of verse 2, Do you not know what the Scripture says? And what he does is he goes back to 1 Kings 19 during the days of Elijah. That's the examples he's going to quote from 1 Kings 19. In verse 3, he quotes Elijah crying out to God in his day because it appeared to Elijah that he alone, out of all of Israel, I'm the only one, it seems to Elijah, that, that, is, that is faithful, that believes, that wants to follow. Out of all of Israel today, Elijah's like, I'm, I alone am left. But in verse 4, God assures Elijah that he's not the only faithful believer, but that there are 7,000 um, who were faithful believers. But again, note very closely in verse 4 how God says that. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even among ethnic Israelites, salvation was according to God's purpose of election. Who, was sa- who were saved? Not the good ones, but those whom God had kept for himself. And Paul says in verse 5 that that's still what is playing out. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. That's exactly what he had said already back in chapter 9. Toward that, that he, what, and what he, what he emphasizes again here is that uh, is, is what he's emphasizing is the grace of God toward those who are saved, which is not only reminding us of God's incredible kindness, but of our absolute unworthiness. Everything about... Verses 4 through 10 emphasizes our unworthiness and the breathtaking kindness and grace of God to any sinner who repents and believes. How so? Certainly, in the example of Elijah's generation, uh, when think about that time and think about what, I, what, what Elijah is saying. Out of so many thousands upon thousands, if not north of a million Israelites, uh, that, that, that many were in rejection of the Lord. And, and so much so that Elijah's like, I don't know another believer. I feel like I'm the only one, and I feel like I'll, I, Elijah probably had his finger on the pulse of Israel pretty good. That any were faithful, that any at all were faithful when that many had gone astray is not because, oh, these 7,000 were better, but because God had mercy. God had mercy. And then you... We read it uh, just a moment ago, but in verses 7 through 10, and he has, he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages, but these verses 7 through 10 are all about this issue of God's hardening of sinners. He says in verse 7, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And um, we had to have that hard discussion, no pun intended, um, back in chapter 9. Because he talked about hardening there when he used Pharaoh as the, as the example. God hardened Pharaoh. And we talked about that hardening. And what we, did, what we said then, and it holds true here, is that God's heart, what is God's hardening? Think about that word in itself, hardening. It's not God putting into the sinner something that already wasn't there. It's the Lord hardening. It's him confirming uh, what what 
the, confirming them in the, in the rebellious path that that sinner had already freely chosen and persisted in. That is why, by the way, when talking about this hardening, verse 9, if you look there at the end of verse 9, this hardening is referred to as retribution. Retribution, meaning this hardening is not something that, it's not like the sinner is saying, no, I don't want to be disobedient, and God is saying, yes, you are. No, it's a freely chosen disobedience, and the retribution of that is that God hardens them in that. He, 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 he says, essentially to a, to a, a persistent, um, wayward sinner, you, you made your bed, now lay down in it, right? That, and God is just to do that. That's a hard saying, but God is just to do it. And, 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 and what the message you're getting from these first 10 verses is that if God leaves us as we are, as Romans 3 told us about ourselves, we don't freely choose him. Like, the, 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 to quote Romans 3.10, no one seeks after God. That's, nobody does that. No one, uh, yeah, no one does good. No one seeks after God. That anyone does that. Because if I don't do it on my own, that I or anyone else does do that, that is that is evidence that they are foreknown of God and chosen by grace to use the language of Romans chapter 11. So in answer to verse 1, Paul's original question, has God rejected his people? The answer is, as he said, by no means. And he shows again, just like he did in chapter 9, that it has never been by ethnicity or any other thing other than God's gracious purpose of election. Just as he was saving a remnant of people, out of a rebellious generation in Elijah's day, so too he was doing the same in Paul's day. Paul is showing here that God hasn't rejected or forgotten Israel, but they aren't saved simply because they are Jews. Paul already said that in chapter 9, verse 6, that all who are descended from Israel don't belong to Israel. But that doesn't mean God has forgotten them. But it does mean that they are saved in the same way any other sinner is saved. They don't have a... They're, they're not in a special section, right? God is... God, anyone who comes to Christ is saved by God's gracious choice. God is saving a people. But what he does in that, he, he really doesn't say anything new in Romans 11, 1 through 10. That is rehashing his argument from chapter 9. But to advance how he sees this playing out in salvation history, um, let's just keep following his argument in the, in the next verses. So in verses 11 through 16, we see this point that God's people are evident. Now that might seem a little unclear at first, but it's, it is clear when you think carefully about what he's saying in, in verses 11 through 16. How so? In verse 11, Paul points out that it is because of Jews rejecting Christ that the gospel then came to the Gentiles. He says, did I ask, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, that is through the Jews' trespass, through the Jews' rejection, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, interestingly, we have an example of that in Scripture. So hold your place right here uh, in Romans 11 and just flip back to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, just, just quickly, and we'll come back to Romans 11. But in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 44, 
Paul and Barnabas are on mission together, and they, they follow their typical MO. They go to the Jewish synagogue first, and they, they proclaim the word to the, to the Jews first. So look at verse, let's look at verses 44 and 45 first. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. So the Jews by reviling him. So that here we have Jews hear the gospel, Jews reject the gospel. Now look at verses 46 and 47. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul and Barnabas, Jews reject, returning to the Gentiles, just like the Old Testament said. Now look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now what did that last phrase say? It doesn't say, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The gospel came to the Gentiles because of the Jews' rejection, but only those Gentiles who believed, those were the ones who were chosen by grace and appointed to eternal life. I point that passage out, not just to confirm what Paul is saying in Romans 9, verse 11, that the Jews' rejection of, of the gospel meant salvation for the Gentiles, but also that the Gentiles are saved in the same way the Jews are, according to God's purpose of election. But you can turn back to Romans 11 now. And Paul says in verse 2 that in a similar way, Gentiles coming to faith will, in God's plan, lead to the salvation of more Jews. That's what he means in verse 12 by their full inclusion. And he elaborates more. He, he indicated, notice at the end of verse 11, he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. He elaborates on that in verse 13 and 14. He says that the gospel coming to the Gentiles and, and their finding salvation promised in the Old Testament, that would make some Jews jealous and cause them to come to Christ. And so Paul says in verse 13, I therefore magnify my ministry to the Gentiles um, so as to hopefully provoke Jews to jealousy and encourage them, some of them, to come to faith in Christ. In other words, God is saving both Jews and Gentiles, and he's using each to bring salvation to the other. Now, how that actually works out in salvation history will happen by God's sovereign working and our faithful witness to all nations. But I, the point I want to draw from these verses is a much simpler one. As I thought about these verses, and, and, and it's, a, it's, it's this simple thought. For the Gentiles to be a light to the Jews, to use the example here in this passage, for the Gentiles to be a light to the Jews means that their faith and walk with Christ is evident, is evident enough as to be known and attractive to the Jews to make them want to follow Christ. And if that's true in, in, in this case, then it's true in all cases, not just from G Gentiles to Jews. In other words, as I read these verses and understanding what it says about Jews and Gentiles, uh, I took it as an admonishment myself in all cases to ask myself and to consider if my walk with Christ is evident to the people I come in contact with, 
And if so, is it, is it such, in such a way as to make Christ more attractive to them um, rather than to turn them away from Christ, to provoke them to jealousy? I want what he has, right? Paul is saying much, much more than that, but he's certainly not saying less than that. The broad point he's making is that God used the Jews to bring salvation to the Gentiles, so before it's all said and done, he's going to do the same in reverse. Gentiles are going to help bring Jews into the kingdom. But in any of those particular instances of that happening in, in actual life, it's going to be through the attractive witness of one to another. Certainly those who, who are appointed to eternal life will believe, but God's purpose of election makes use of the means of the witness of his people. Before we move on, I want to, to the third point, though. Um, it's worth mentioning one more point in application of these verses. And that is in terms of missions and taking the gospel to the nations. Absolutely, Paul in chapter 10 emphasized taking the gospel to those who have never heard. How are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And, um, and we often associate that with places um, with little or no gospel witness. And that's right. And that's, that's the message of Romans 10. So where has Christ not been named? Let's go there, right? But he follows that up in, cha- in, in the very next chapter, chapter 11, with a clear mandate never to cease our missions efforts with the gospel to the Jewish people who are not located in any one particular nation or region uh, or place, um, but they're, 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 they're all over the world. And, and it's just a good reminder that anti-Semitism and, ra- and that form of racism always seems to be an issue in every generation. But his, the admonition he gives us here is, is uh, to be mindful of that and, and to have a posture toward them as one of love, sharing Paul's desire for them to be saved. And so don't forget them in our mission's efforts. But as we keep moving ahead in our chapter, the third thing I, I believe we see Paul say uh, or emphasize in verses 17 to 24 is that God's people are humble. In these verses, Paul makes use of the image of an olive tree. And it's a little tongue twisty before it's all said and done. But um, I'll try to simplify this. This, this, this. this image of an olive tree with branches, some being broken off, some being grafted in. What's this all about? In the Old Testament, the people of God were often represented in Scripture by the image of an olive tree. So, for example, Jeremiah eleven sixteen, Jeremiah says to Judah, the Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But that passage goes on to talk about how those branches were cut off because of the rebellion, offering sacrifices to Baal. And the olive tree seems to have the same sense here in this passage where it represents the collective people of God with the branches being grafted in, being the Gentiles, the branches being cut off, being the Jews who didn't believe and rejected Christ. But notice what Paul does with this idea here. If you look down at verse 20, he says, That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Paul is quick to say that the Gentiles were not grafted into the salvation uh, because they deserved it. uh, And it would not go any better for them. If, if they grew proud as the Jews did. So that's what, that's what he continues saying in verse 21. For if the Jews did not spare the natural branches, or if God did not spare the natural branches, that, was, that is Jews, neither will he spare you, Gentiles. He says in verse 2 that they, we, would be cut off if we fall away. 
And we should note, he says in verse 22, that we should note the kindness and severity of God in that case. Uh, His severity, if we fall away, is kindness if we continue in it. Those are some hard words. What, What do we make of that? How do we understand that? Well, when you come across a passage like that, and it kind of has some sting to it, you don't need to interpret in such a way that it takes all the sting out of it because it has sting. He wrote, he wrote it that way. But still, how do you understand it? Well, here's how, this is a warning. So here, here's where we start. The warnings are true. If we, if anyone persists in unbelief, And if we fall from this outward appearance of following Christ, we will be cut off. Not meaning that we lose our salvation that we once had, but we are cut off from our association among the people of God. That that person for whom that's true never was born again. They may have given an appearance of that for a time, but time told the rest of the story. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. But their going out proved that they never were of us. We know that for true, true believers, the promise of God is that you would never fall away. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We know that for, for, for the believer, when, uh, uh, so that, that we're going to persevere to the end, but he's going to preserve us and... and you know, we have that confidence, but nevertheless, two things are true at the same time. God's word and promise is true. These warnings are true. And it's all in how they function in your life. For the believer, when he or she reads a warning like this, it's jarring. And we think, oh, I don't want that to be me. And it causes us to cling to Christ more strongly, right? And, the, and in that case, the warning has done its job. But for an unbeliever, these warnings don't have that jarring effect because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. And when they fall away, what the warning said about them is true. There were both in Israel and Judah in in the Old Testament. And and there were warnings in the Old Testament. The faithful heard them and heeded them, and the faithless didn't, and they fell away. And Paul is saying, so too now, we're no different. The believer who is saved by grace and whose life in Christ is evident to those around them is admonished here to be humble and humble and heed the calls not to become proud or lazy in your walk with Christ, but hold on to Christ. But t- he says, take your cue from those who went before you, though they had every advantage given to them, and the, uh, uh, but ask the Lord to help you persevere to the f- faithfully to the end. These warnings are a means to that end, and we should be thankful for them. All right, finally, Paul ends this chapter on a more hopeful note. He gives us this final truth. God's people are for God's God's glory. Think about that with me as we draw this chapter to a close. I take this point from the very end of the chapter. Since the conclusion of what he says, um, at at that he breaks forth in doxology. He begins his point in verse 25, talking about the mystery of God's unfolding plan to save his people, both Jew and Gentile in Christ. And it is that unfolding plan that causes him to break forth in praise. But before we get to that, let's start at the beginning of this section, verses 25 and 26, and uh, I'll tell you how I understand these verses. Paul says in verse 25 that a partial hardening has come upon Israel, and I I take Israel to mean ethnic Jews. 
A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of God's people among the Gentiles are saved. And then verse 26 says, and in this way all Israel will be saved. This has been confusing to a lot of people for a lot of time. And, and I can only tell you how I see it, and hopefully you can see it too. At first glance, at first glance, um, it may seem like Paul is saying that a bunch of Gentiles are getting saved, and then once they're saved, then a bunch of Jews will, be, will, will, will get saved right at the very end before Jesus comes back. Because it almost seems like he's saying that right now there's a partial hardening on Israel until... That word is right there in verse 25. Until all the Gentiles come in, implying that then the hardening would be removed and a bunch of Jews would come in. And a lot of people take that view. Uh, I just don't see it that way for a couple of reasons. One, it's hard to see that Gentiles would one day just all, all of a sudden stop coming to Christ altogether. And then the only people getting saved are Jews. Um, that just... That just seems funny and doesn't sort of pass the first smell test. But the other reason I don't see it this way is because I don't think that what, that's what Paul is saying in the rest of the chapter. Paul already represented, uh, represented himself as an example of an ethnic Jew who was coming to faith in Christ, uh, as an example of God not giving up on the Jews. And in verse 13, Paul was conducting his ministry at that time in such a way uh, as to see Jews come to faith in Christ by Gentiles stirring them up to jealousy. Um, and the book of Acts bears this out. The Jews came to Christ. That, not in Acts 13, but in other chapters. Jews, synagogue leaders, were coming to faith in Christ. And so what do you make of this partial hardening? I, I see the partial hardening in verse 25 as saying there, it's, a, it's not a complete hardening. It's a partial one. There are Jews out there now who uh, will come to Christ if we take the gospel to them. And, and, and why does it say that this partial hardening would one day go away once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in? Because that will be the end when Christ returns. There's no, there's no need for a partial hardening anymore. Christ returns because I think that's what's in view in verses 26 and 27, his coming again. In other words, the fullness of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles are now being saved at the same time, right? Throughout the church age, verse 31, if you look there, says that the Jews are now receiving mercy along with the Gentiles. They are now, that they also, they who? The Jews. They also may now receive mercy. And with this, Paul rests his case. God's word has not failed. And he has not rejected his people. And for this, Paul breaks forth in doxology in verse 36. And he not only praises God because from him and through him are all things, but also because to him are all things, and that includes us. To him be glory forever from us and in us. And to that we join with Paul and give our amen. Paul has, with this, concluded the mainly theological section of the letter. Not to say there's no theology left, but it's been predominantly theology for 11 chapters. Beginning with chapter 12, verse 1, you see, you see, uh, you see the therefore in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, 
He's about to turn a corner. And uh, from there to the end of the letter, he's going to lay out many various applications to our Christian lives of all of these things.